I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the more fascinating reads of the season is the new memoir from Hannah McGregor. A sentimental education looks at the word sentimental and what it means to her and how it shaped her life, her academic career, and her feminism. She looks critically and carefully at the works that inform her thinking then as now. The reader is invited to think critically about their own education, as it were, in all its forms, sentimental or otherwise, which uh, is an added experience to reading Hannah's own thinking about education, feminism, and culture itself. I'll ask Hannah about um, change in her own trajectory as well as change in others. I'll ask her about uh, how she works to dismantle barriers uh, to academia as um, well as the vital work she does in tearing down hierarchies, not just with regards to culture but everything else. The book is engaging and thoughtful. She shares stories about her mother as well as her work as an academic. She thinks critically about her role as a public intellectual and examines her work in recent years as a podcaster. She is the host of uh, the podcast Secret Feminist Agenda and the Spoken Web Podcast and co-host of Which Please. Hannah McGregor is an assistant professor of publishing at Simon Fraser University and co-edited the book Refuse, Candlelit in Ruins, her website is at hannahmcgregor.com. This uh, new book is from Wilfrid Laurier University Press. We spoke nearly two weeks ago. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Hannah McGregor. Uh, Dr. McGregor, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Pretty good yourself. Pretty good. Uh, did you always want to be a teacher? Mm, yeah, I really did. As a young person, I liked to play school with my friends and insisted, would never be the student, would always insisted on being the teacher. <laughs> I was thinking about it as uh, looking back at my own childhood. I guess it's, it's, it's one of those jobs that we encounter regularly, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. regardless of what our parents do. We don't really go to work with our parents, um, but we always see the teacher. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. We've got, we've got a set of jobs that we tend to be familiar with as children, and it's a combination of the jobs that we personally encounter you know, teacher being the main one, and then the jobs that, like, show up a lot in kids' books. Yeah. So I, I wanted to either be a teacher or a ballet dancer. Like, where, where did that come from? I had no passion for dance. It's just they were in kids' books, and I like the tutus. Yeah, my, my, uh, my, my dad used to say that because that, we, we I, I don't drive, and so I still ride the bus. And um, my, my dad used to say as a kid, I would say that um, I wanted to be a bus driver, mm-hmm. and uh, which is ironic because I don't, know how to drive um <laughs> to this day it's a barrier so um but but i guess i, I didn't counter the bus driver regularly yeah and i guess you just think that that's but the, the other thing that that um that i kept thinking about as i was reading your book a sentimental education was that um at the at the heart of your work not just in, in the book but your your scholarship in your in your uh, work outside of school say um is this idea of tearing down say the barriers Mm. Um, for, for for accessibility, um, you've made uh, academia accessible to a wider audience. That that's just one example, um, and and so, do you find that uh, as you continue your work as as a teacher, if you will, um, a priority? Say, yeah, absolutely. You know, I I only recently read a study that said you know there's some wild disproportion of people who end up being professors being the kids of professors, mm-hmm. which which makes sense because that's how, like, privilege reproduces itself, but it's 
it's not something that I really understood when I was in grad school, which is probably useful because neither of my parents finished their undergraduate degrees. So if I had, if I had known that, maybe it would have put me off. But I was raised by folk musicians and Folk music is all about the idea that music is for everybody, mm. that it's not just for the talented, it's not just for sort of rare, special people. Um, you know, music isn't something that you, you know, some genius performs for you. It's something you sit down in a circle and make together, um, and everybody gets to participate, and you know, to the best of their ability. And I think I brought a lot of that understanding of, like, education like music just is for everyone like it's better the more we share it I brought that into my sort of personal journey through academia and so I never really got on board with the whole idea that the prestige of the institution is contingent on who you exclude from it Mm. and it's it's a, a very deeply held understanding I've heard colleagues say to me nobody would want to get a degree from an institution that anyone could go to. <laughs> and I'm just like, wildly don't understand that perspective. Yeah. Like, oh, it's an institution that's for everyone? Gross. Like, <laughs> come on, we've got, we're, we're a like, semi-socialist country. Surely we're on board with the idea of institutions that for, are for everyone. Yeah, and then that builds into something that you talk about in the book is is, is this the the uh, t- taking down the hierarchy of culture, mm-hmm. um, uh, because I think um, there's 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 obviously still that strain of people who think well that's highbrow or that's that's junk or, or mm-hmm. low culture if you will. Uh, why is it important that we we do that especially, and and, and why should, should why should we be concerned that there is a hierarchy of culture in our in our society? You know, I think that there's always going to be some form of hierarchy of culture because people, I mean, I shouldn't say always, but, you know, people with with cultural power are going to use their cultural power to police what what counts as high culture and what doesn't. Um, but what we can do is uh, ignore that or or at least think critically about that. Um, and I think, I think it matters because to... Too simplistically accepting that just some culture is good and some culture is bad yeah. prevents us from actually asking the good, interesting questions about, like, what culture is doing. You know, I could look at the rise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and say, oh, it's awful. You can't make good movies anymore. All, you know, every actor has to be in a Marvel movie, and those are, and Marvel movies are terrible, and it's the fall of culture. Um, which is, you know, sure, I guess, it's a, it's a good hot take for Twitter, but it doesn't really get you anywhere in terms of actually thinking about the, the role that culture plays in our lives. You, you might ask instead, okay, how has the, the nature of cinema shifted such that certain kinds of movies are getting made over other kinds? And what is it about those movies that are really drawing people right now mm, you know is there yeah. something about these stories that are captivating a collective global imagination that doesn't necessarily mean like and that means they're great and everybody who criticizes them is wrong it just means deciding if culture is good or bad is a pretty boring thing to do with it 
Indeed, indeed. Um, this idea of a sentimental education, as you look back at, at um, that which you consumed as, as a child, or that you that, that you um, say remember even today. Well, how do, how is that word sentimental? I mean, how would you define that in terms of the the the, the confines of your book? Mm, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about it sort of in two main ways. Um, one is as a category of culture, and then the other is as a way that we read things. Mm. And so we've got sort of this, you know, 18th, 19th century philosophical and literary movement that is sentimentality, and there's a bunch of sentimental works that emerge out of that period, including, of course, Gustave Flaubert's A Sentimental Education, which is what I stole the title of my book from. Um and so that's a, you know, that's a philosophical and literary movement that we can point at and understand its, its history and what it was doing in terms of genre um, and study those works and think about them. And then we've got our sentimentality as a way of reading, as a, as a personal or sometimes sort of collective relationship that we have to certain forms of culture. Um, and, you know, I might have my sort of esoteric personal sentimental faves. You know, in the book I talk about Dennis Lee's book, Lizzie's Lion, which is definitely not a, like, collective cultural touch point. It's a pretty weird <laughs> children's, Canadian children's yeah. book about yeah. a lion devouring a robber. Um, <laughs> but, you know, other things I talk about, like Little Women, are, are more of a collectively sentimentalized story. Um, and the, the tricky thing, I think, is where my personal sentimental relationship to text and the actual sentimentality of the text themselves often get um, tangled together or confused. So you hear a critic say, like, ugh, I hated this movie, it was so sentimental. And that you then have to ask, like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Do you mm. mean that it's using the tropes of sentimental narrative? Do you mean that it felt like it was emotionally pandering to you and it didn't work on you? Did it work on other people? If so, why? So you know, so it's a it's a complex term. Yeah, and that, that, that's the, that's the fascinating part is the tangled part. It, mm. is, as, as I read your book and see the relationships that you had uh, with things then as now, um, that I found fascinating um, it, it, because it makes you one. I may not have read some of the things that you've read um, mm -hmm. even now, um, but uh, it made me think of the things that I liked. And whether um, they stand up, if you will, and I, I know that's a terrible yeah. thing to say, but um, um, it, it's funny how how we it, we can see how we evolve, and and I, th that must mm -hmm. have been fun for you to think about that, was it? It was. It really was, and and in part, it was actually inspired by an activity that I used to do in a class that I taught back when I was at the University of Alberta, a class on the history of reading, and. I would have my students do an activity where they would sort of create a personal autobiography of reading, where they would go through books that they felt had been transformative to them through their lives, and then think about, you know, where did I encounter that book? How did I understand it at the time? What role does it have in my life now? As a way of really starting to think about how the way we read things um, is often frames most of what we get out of a text rather than there being just some like neutral objective meaning to that text that everybody can access right it's you know it's, it's reader response theory is what we call it in academia but i find it really interesting and so 
it was a fun activity to sort of do on myself to look through my bookshelf and say like, okay, what are the books here that have a really sentimental charge for me? And then what is, you know, what story do those books tell when I put them side to side by side? Yeah, I was thinking the other day of a, a book. I don't read horror or I don't read much mm. fiction really. Um, but, but there is one, um, Andrew Piper book that, that, um, I really enjoyed reading it, but it was during a very painful time in one's life. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember just how much I enjoyed getting into the book because it took me out of whatever was happening in my life at that moment. Mm -hmm. And um, I recommend it to people still, um, The Demonologist by Andrew Piper, because it, it, um, it's, a, it's a hell of a good book. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, I don't know if I want to reread it again. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes books really do become these sort of, like, crystallized representations of a moment in your life. And that question of whether, you know, are there, are, is a book something that you read at a per certain point, loved, and can't return to? Or is it something that you return to over and over again, almost sort of as a ritual of rereading? I'm not a huge rereader myself. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, and so... I, I'm really interested in the practice because, you know, I make a podcast about Harry Potter, and that is a huge reread for people. Like, there are people who just reread Harry Potter constantly, just yeah. over and over and over and over again, um, or listen to the audiobooks over and over and over and over again, so that it's almost like background noise. Um, and I find that so interesting, the way that we sort of structure our lives around these cultural touch points. And maybe it's a cultural touch point that, like, we sort of always have going. Or maybe it's something like this Andrew Piper book where it's, like, it's locked to a particular moment for you um, and maybe kind of indivisible from that period in your life. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I still, I mean, there, there's some other books that I remember where I was when I read them. Mm. And and um, that plays so much in terms of one's memory as well of, of the book because it's a one in the same almost. Uh, where yeah. I read it and the book. Um, in in a sentimental education, you write about your mother, uh, Teresa mm -hmm. Joan Penner Terry, as as people would call her. Um, yeah. This uh, brings up something that that uh, I found fascinating because you just touched on this a moment ago in terms of of how we evolve in terms of of as people. Um, mm -hmm. You you write in the book that um, there were a lot of opinions of hers that she had um, that. Uh, you know that that had she lived longer, she would have changed. She would have evolved the, uh, those opinions as well. And so much of our thinking is that once once someone dies, whatever they they thought or said is mm -hmm. it. And and I think that's such an important thing to think about, isn't it? That yeah. um, the, these things, um, like everything else in life, we all evolve, don't we? We do. We do, and we involve in relation to each other. So part of my certainty that her perspectives would have changed comes from the fact that she was 44 when she died, uh -huh. and I am now 38 and have many friends who are in their mid to late 40s. And so I have a very different sense of how old 44 is than I did when I was 16. Mm. You know, 44 seems quite young to me now. Um and the idea that that's it by 44, you've had all of the opinions you're going to have seems absurd to me. Like, of course, people, your 
maybe halfway through your life, ideally, you're going to keep learning and growing and changing. Um, you know, and the, the other part of that determination for me is that I have learned and grown and changed so much, and the people in your life grow and change with you in relation to you. Yeah. You know, when you when you come out, your family's, hopefully, perspective on queer people changes. You know, maybe not immediately, but gradually. You know, when you... And, and that's a lot of how we learn. We learn through life and we learn through relationships. And And so, you know, when somebody dies, they in some ways, sort of fall out of relationship, and and then we sort of freeze them in that moment. And so part of writing this book for me was trying to sort of bring my mother back into living relation to me and my thinking, and to, even though I can't, you know, know for sure Mm -hmm. what she would think now, I can unfreeze her from that moment and, and... let my relationship to her continue to grow and shift because I have grown and shifted and changed. And so, you know, why, why would that relationship need to remain static? And, and it's, it's marvelous to read you talk about her in the book um, because um, there are some views that she had that are, that are obviously imperfect. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I'm reading it, she, she almost comes alive as a character um, and she obviously was a character in in mm-hmm. your life, but but it, it, it's marvelous to see how um, you thinking about her today, um, how one could have changed. Say, I mean, so some of yeah. the, I, I don't want to to um, dwell on on some of the things that she said because people should read the book to get a better understanding of the whole picture. Um, but it, it, it's it's marvelous just to see. Um, your own growth as well. As well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't have, I tend to be a bit of a pessimist about a lot of things. I don't, have, I don't have faith in a lot of things, but I have really profoundly deep faith in the capacity for humans to change. Mm. Um, I don't think you can be a teacher if you don't, because that's what education is. Yeah. Education is, is transformation. And, and so I know that I have changed. I know that I see the people around me changing all the time. And I think sometimes we have an urge, a sort of maybe sense of embarrassment for our past selves and past, you know, bad takes that we might have had, and an urge to sort of retcon ourselves or our own histories to be like, oh, no, no, I never thought that. I never I never had a bad opinion about this thing. Um, and I get where that instinct comes from, uh, and I think it's been really exacerbated by social media right. and the tendency to, yeah. like, you know, drag up people's old tweets and hold them accountable for them. And I also think that that attempt to retcon really erases the fact of learning. And and I think it's really important to model publicly that we learn and we change and we grow and that that is, uh, you know, sometimes hard but ultimately really exciting process that we all get to participate in an ongoing way, like not just for the first, you know, 15 years of our lives, but like just the whole time. We can just keep learning the whole time. Indeed, indeed. Um, you, you write in the book um, th- that your feminism is imperfect. Mm. Um, 
I was going to ask how so, but but I think the, the better question is, um, as a guy trying to understand this stuff, um, what is perfect? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is that it's not. There's no such thing. It's not. It's not perfectible. Um, the way that I know this is again sort of looking back and recognizing that education has happened, and then extrapolating forward. So I know in the past five years that I have come to understand a bunch of things that five years ago I didn't understand and, and you know, didn't know that I didn't understand at the time. You know, I have um, come to understand gender in a really different way because I have a lot more trans and gender nonconforming people in my life. And so my understanding of gender has gotten more sophisticated and more nuanced and, um, you know, the way that I talk about womanhood has gotten, I've read more books, I've come to understand the history better, like, I've learned, and so I, I understand things differently. And I know that in the past, and this is one of the things about being, you know, a public intellectual, like, in the past, when I've said things, like, you know, equated womanhood with a particular set of reproductive organs, uh-huh. that people have reached out to me and said, like, hey, that's, that's actually not how this works. Yeah. And, and so I, it's much harder to erase the fact of, you know, that I had different opinions five years ago because they're on the record. <laughs> they're extremely on the record. Um, and I could make the choice to go back and, and delete those if I wanted to. But again, I, I think that there's some value in, in maintaining a public record of my own process of learning but extrapolating from that, you know, I, I have really different understandings of a lot of things today than I did 5 or 10 or 15 years ago. Well, why would I think that where I've arrived now is the end point? That would be kind of silly to assume. Like, well, I was confused 5 years ago, but now I understand everything. And part of it is that feminism is not some, some stable still a rival point, right? We're not all moving towards some destination. It, it's a collective orientation towards liberation. And that means that it's never, ever going to be fully accomplished and that its nature is never going to be pinned down and finalized. It's got to keep changing because the world keeps changing. Yeah, and you know the the knock on, on feminism for for a while there was that um, it was, and you touch upon this in the book, is that it, that it um, it was more reflective of say white feminism to the exclusion of of other races, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some people would react to that by saying, "Well, then, uh, if if that's the case, then they, they do a one eighty on feminism, if you will." <laughs> yeah, um, which is not 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 evolutionary at all, is it? But um, that, that's a that's a uh, an opinion held by some, and, and so sometimes some of the more loudest people in, in our in our society. Um, when you look at race, say in in yeah. relation to feminism, um, is is it better reflective of say the wider society today than say five ten years ago? I mean, undoubtedly, mainstream feminism has gotten more meaningfully intersectional. Um, you know, part of that, that critique of the history of feminism is that, you know, that term, feminism, emerges out of a particular history of 
women's rights agitation that was driven by white women. Um, and so, you know, for a lot of women of color, the history of feminism is a history that actually quite explicitly has excluded them. And so no, they're not interested. And so you've got, you know, other traditions of women's emancipation, women's collective organizing, emerging out of other cultural contexts, like, like womanism as a sort of movement among black women. And there's a really, you know, great body of, of feminist scholarship talking about how the concept of woman is a, a tactical political concept, which is to say what it has meant to be a woman has been wildly different in different historical moments, in different cultural contexts. Um, womanness was something, for example, that um, during slavery, black women did not have access to. That black women were female, but not women. Mm. Um, because womanhood had, you know, with it sort of a concept of, of ha- humanness. Um, and that was not something that, that, you know, white people were interested in extending, extending to black people. And so when, when I say woman, I have to remember that I'm always using this term sort of contingently. And, and we can do that when we decide to politically organize together. We can say, let's agree that we have enough in common around this particular set of experiences that we can say, uh, all right, we're all on the same page here. Let's organize. Mm. This is pan-indigeneity has a similar history. Uh-huh. The idea of sort of, indigeneity as a shared identity across many, many, many different nations was a a strategic political move of saying we're different nations, we have different histories, we have different languages, we have different cultures, but let's collectivize tactically around this particular shared identity because we are stronger together. Um, And I think it's really important to remember that it's a tactical you know, strategy, rather than falling into the idea that there's something inherently true, because that's where we get turf. Mm. That's where we get people really being like, oh, no, woman is a stable, consistent, ahistorical category, and I somehow get to decide who's in it and who's not in it, which, like, sounds an awful lot like white supremacists approaches to womanhood it sounds a lot more like that than it does like feminism to me yeah it makes me think about my, my parents are filipino i've mm-hmm. never i've never I, i've never thought of myself as filipino because i was born in canada i've thought, mm-hmm. thought of myself as a canadian or, or british Columbian even more than anything yeah. um and um i'm encouraged by a lot of people today who uh, are filipino or, or, or to use that uh, old phrase of, of Filipino extraction, mm. who um, say that you, you don't have to, say, speak the language or eat the food or, you know, that, that you can pick aspects of it and identify as that. And I, th- mm-hmm. I, I think that's an evolution of, of the idea of being Filipino mm-hmm. itself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it would need to change, wouldn't it, as the, as the diasporic community gets larger and Indeed, there's more yeah. people... Who are like, okay, you know, I've I've never lived in the Philippines. I don't speak the language. I don't, and yet here I am. Like it's part of who I am. How do I articulate that? And particularly, how do I articulate that in a way that 
helps me connect to a community I want to be connected to, right? Because identity is so often about figuring out where we belong and who our people are, um, rather than just some sort of stable, like, okay, I want to be able to put this label on me and then and then be done. Yeah, and if, if I wanted to be static and, and stay here, um, I can with that part of my, my identity now, if you will. Mm-hmm. Small or big, depending on the, 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 the uh, day of the week. Um, I'm jumping around here, Hannah, because there's so many rich things in your book. The, the idea of um, uh, um, the podcast, uh, which mm. plays, which, which you, you started in 2005, and, and uh, uh, Secret Feminist Agenda is another podcast that, that um, you worked on. Um, I, I found this fascinating because I'm a podcaster myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, talk about. Um, seeing yourself as performing when you're doing that. Um, are you conscious of that now, or or, or, or do you um, say are, are less performing when you're, when you're on a podcast or you're doing your own podcast? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about it is that we are always performing in contact, in different contexts. Um, and when we enter a new context for the first time, we might become particularly aware of that performance. That's often where imposter syndrome comes in, mm. that you're, you know, when you're in a new context and you really feel like, oh, I am putting on an act right now, and everybody's going to figure out that I'm putting on an act because I'm maybe not doing a great job yet. Um, and then you get good at that context. You get familiar with it. You, you learn your lines really well. And then you, you stop thinking about the fact that you're performing. You know, when I first started teaching, I was so self-conscious about what it meant to stand in front of a classroom and be a teacher. And I was young, and so I, I, I like, really dressed like a teacher. Like, I always wore heels, and I always wore a blazer, and I was like, yes, hello, I am a professor. Look at me in my professor clothes. Yeah. And now I'm just like, yeah, whatever, I'm just going to roll into class. Like, it's fine. Um, <laughs> and that's... That doesn't mean that I'm not still doing a performance at the front of the classroom because I'm still different at the front of a classroom than I am hanging out on a friend's couch or on a Zoom call with my dad or in a therapy session or, like, these are all really different performances. It's just that I've gotten used to that one. And so I don't think I've stopped performing as a podcaster. I just think, you know, I've been doing it for seven years, and so it's a pretty comfortable performance at this point. Um, I sort of slide into it more easily. Um, and yeah. that's, you know... Yeah, that's 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 the, the, the part of the book that I, that I also enjoyed, and I'm still thinking about, um, because you, you do slide into doing this, mm-hmm. and then it does affect the, the conversations that you have with people outside yep. of, of the, the, the conceit of, a, of an interview, say, that, that we're doing now. Um, if if we had this conversation without an audience, if you will, mm-hmm. I mean we're doing it now without an audience, but we're, we're oh. doing it for the posterity of someone who will be listening to this eventually. Yeah. Um, it would be a very different conversation, wouldn't it? And it would be completely different. Like if we were just sitting down over coffee and talking mm-hmm. with no recorder going, yeah. we would both be talking differently right now. 
I'd probably be swearing more, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I would be, like, less concerned about creating full, grammatically correct sentences as I speak. Um, I, I also found quite poignant, uh, as you write near the, the end of the book, about how the pandemic um, might have changed your perspective on care, not just about others, but yourself especially. Mm-hmm. That, that's yeah. something that I, I think a lot of us who've gone through the last two and a half years, three years, haven't really thought about. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote a lot of this book and, you know, did all of the editing of it during the pandemic. And that has been such a an eye-opening experience for me, particularly around my relationship to Vancouver and to the communities that I have here. You know, I moved to Vancouver in 2016 for a job at SFU, uh-huh. um, but I kept doing the thing that academics do where I was here for eight months because I was teaching, but then during the summer I was gone, um, traveling for conferences and then going back home to Ontario to visit my family and, and just not around. And so it was hard to put down roots um, because I was constantly leaving. And the pandemic made me stay in Vancouver <laughs> for two and a half years, like really just stay put. And so I had this interesting experience of a lot of my my forms of care and community getting cut off quite suddenly. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I my networks, my communities are quite widespread because I have been moving for school my whole life. And or at least my whole adult life, and all of a sudden, I couldn't go there. I couldn't go to Edmonton to see my community. I couldn't go to Halifax to see my people. I couldn't go to Ottawa to see my parents. I just had to stay here, and I felt so cut off, and then simultaneously so connected to the city in a way I hadn't been before because I was here, like just really, really here, like watching how the flowers change across the year. And it it made me really want to start building deeper, richer networks in the city. And it also made me really aware of the fact that as a queer, childless woman who lives alone, I was going to have to really do the legwork of making those networks and figuring out how to be in community with people um, that didn't look like the kinds of communities that government health protocols were anticipating. You know, all of the early regulations were about, you know, like two households can gather. Right. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> am I a household? Like, what do I, what does that mean? Yeah. I don't, you know, and, and so... You know, my community here, like, we we figured it out for ourselves. We figured out how we were going to take care of each other. We figured out how we were going to keep each other safe, both in the sense of trying very hard not to give each other COVID, but also trying to keep each other's, like, mental and emotional health safe, which is also part of, of community care. Um, and it has been, you know, a really eye-opening experience for me in terms of under duress the kinds of communities that we can build and the kinds of networks of mutual aid and care that we can create 
Um, you know, that when the government lets us down, as it has around the pandemic and yeah. as it has let down minoritized communities for all of history, um, you know, government lets us down and we, we step in and take care of each other instead. You know, I could talk all afternoon with you. Um, this is such a fascinating book, and um, uh, it's one that I enjoyed a great deal, and, and I think I enjoyed it because it, it got me thinking about my own life and, and, and mm-hmm. the things that I read and consume as, as, a, as a person. And um, it, um, I can't tell you how, how much better I am for reading it. Congratulations, Hannah, on this book, and I so appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. The website for more is at hannahmcgregor.com. The book is called The Sentimental Education. It's published by Wilfrid Laurier University Press. Its author, Hannah McGregor, joined me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato.